We are back in the book of Ephesians. We are continuing where we left off last time. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Oh God, without your presence and your spirit enlivening your word, we know that nothing of eternal value will happen. Oh, how we beseech you to open the eyes of our hearts. Feed us now with your holy word. Send now your holy manna. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like for you to see uh, three things out of our text this evening. The first is the knowledge of God. The second is the, the benefits or the benefits that accompany it. And the third is the effect of that knowledge upon the church and upon the world. Now, first, I just want to mention, uh, I am sure no one is as um, unsanctified as I am. And when you read this part about, well, I give thanks to you and yada, uh, there's some tendency to think that this is kind of filler intro letter stuff. You know, I'm Paul, I'm this person, and I'm, I'm thankful for you and, and yada, yada, and we move on in the thing. That is most certainly not the situation with these passages. This is not filler, as you will see. Verse 15, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Uh, Paul, you remember, had planted the church at Ephesus. He planted this church. You are also familiar, however, with the fact that not everyone who professes to be a believer is one in reality. And so you can imagine he's planted this church and he has spent over two years there and now he's gone and he's in prison and he's wondering about what is what are these church plants that I've left? What's happening to them? What's going on with them? Are they thriving? Are they are they diminishing? What is going on? And so this is a real concern he has. Now, what is he thankful for? He he mentions two things in verse 15. He mentions the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love towards all the saints. Two things. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones makes it clear that he's intentional about this. It is the belief and the practice. It is the faith and the works. So uh, James, the book of James, makes it very clear that a dead faith that is only a profession and is not, has no substance of a born-again reality beneath it is not real. We know that justification is indeed by faith alone. We'll get to that in this next chapter, too. And it is apart from works of the law. But Paul is showing here that there is... While there is no place in justification uh, for works, there is a place in faith for works. They accompany it. Fruit, the fruit of that genuine faith yields that love towards each other that he's mentioning. So he is so thankful. He's giving thanks for the belief you have in Christ Jesus that is so essential and the love that they're expressing towards one another. Lloyd-Jones, who was a doctor, a physician before he was a pastor, mentions it as a chemistry test. This is a litmus test you can apply if a person has the faith but does not have the love and the works outworking in it, then that faith is a dead kind of faith. Um, You can think of uh, the demons. They know about things. They know about Christ. They don't deny that Christ exists. They don't deny that God exists, but they don't have what are their works? What is the fruit of that? They fight against him. They are opposing him. So Paul is so thankful that I see the faith that you profess and the love that you profess. Uh, Calvin calls this the whole excellence of Christian character. And of course, Jesus summarized the whole of the law in these two things. Uh, The summary of the law as love God and then love your neighbor. The first four commandments, love God. The second six commandments, love your neighbor. In 1 John 3, 23, this is what it says. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Notice there, it's one. He says this is his commandment. And yet it's two things. Uh, It's so united there, this faith and works. Uh, Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. All right. We get the point on that. Those are so wedded together. And Paul is so thankful that he sees that fruit in their lives. Verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, uh, that is quite a statement to make. I do not cease to give thanks for you. So what does he mean by this? Is he meaning at every moment of every day, he is in active prayer. He is praying that he is thankful for these people. Well, uh, it would be hard to imagine you can do anything, eat or do anything else if you were in that. What is this? It is the commitment, the practice, habitual practice of prayer. The opposite of this, um, John Piper would say, would be intermittent prayer, occasional prayer, happenstance prayer, prayer that just happens to come along. He is saying, I am intentionally, consistently, frequently thinking of you and praying for you. What could cause this sort of thankfulness to be there? How, why would he be so thankful just that these other people are believers? Well, what have we just covered in verses 1 through 14? 
It was that Christ, God, from all eternity past, has been ordaining and predestining and pulling people out of perdition into salvation. It was part of this eternal plan that's been working out. This is not, when a person becomes a Christian, it's not this minor, tiny little thing. Well, they were this and now they're a believer. It is a giant miracle. It is a transposition from death to life. It, it, we should be astounded by every single conversion that happens. And Paul is so thankful for each of these miracles that happens. Uh, Charles Spurgeon makes the note. Uh, he's talking here about, I don't, I don't cease to give thanks for you. And he says, do you notice how there is no such thing as an Armenian prayer? Why didn't he say, I'm thankful that you decided and God, you know, was just kind of on the sidelines watching. He says, no, I thank God that you have come. I thank God that he. So this is a part of God's actions. When we pray for healing, when we pray for this, that's praying for God to intervene. That's praying for God to live and to do and to act in our lives. Notice the disposition that Paul is uh, modeling for us. How should our heart be oriented towards missions? We should be so hungry to see people come to Christ. We should be sharing and telling and and planting and watering the seeds of the gospel in people's lives. And then when we see it growing, we should be nurturing it and being thankful. That should be part of our daily lives. This shouldn't just be something that Paul is doing. This is something that all of us are doing to the people we see. This is our heart. We want to see it. You will notice the beauty of this kind of person who is constantly praying for others. Uh, I mentioned uh, that I miss Ken and Linda all the time. They were so wonderful in this church. Ken was an amazing associate pastor, and Linda was just a stalwart in this church, just a pillar in this church. And I knew that when I mentioned a prayer request to them, that it would be prayed for. I knew that it would be in the hands. What a beautiful picture that Paul is showing us that we should be this type of person. Uh, hopefully, we are not the type of Christian who says, oh, okay, I'll pray for that. And then we walk out of the room and we intend to, and then it just slips our mind. And we're, we leave it in the past. It's not part of that, I'm constantly praying for you. Now, you might say, well, I get busy and I have things that get in the way and I get distracted. Well, let's think about Paul. Where is Paul? He's in prison. You think he could have an excuse to be, well, things got in the way here. I have to try and worry about my defense to the emperor, to Rome. I have to worry about how I'm going to get out. I have to do all. He, he could argue that he was a little distracted. And yet he's constantly thinking about these Ephesians and praying for them. Oh, what a model that is for us. Verse 17 That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Notice what he is praying for these Ephesians. What is the deepest need that these Ephesians have? It is knowledge of God. It is not health. He's not praying, I wish that you're going to be showered in money. It's not uh, wealth and health. It's not, I wish you were. It is not uh, prosperity. He is praying, I wish you to have the knowledge of God. What are our priorities in prayer, I wonder? We should take a leaf from Paul's book here. We should be thankful uh, that he's showing us that the deepest need we have is knowledge of God. Now, 
Some of you may have thought in your brain, well, yes, but I already have that knowledge of God. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. Okay. Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to the saints at Ephesus. He's writing to Christians. So this is not just a need that non-believers have. This is a, what is he praying for? He's praying for the eyes of the hearts to be enlightened. Listen to Calvin on this point. And did they not possess these? Yes, but at the same time, they needed an increase. That being endowed with a larger measure of the Spirit and being more and more enlightened, they might be clearly and fully holding their present views. The knowledge of the godly is never so pure but that some dimness or obscurity hangs over the spiritual vision. So we are constantly wanting to grow in that. The more you know about God, the more you know of His character, the more you know about Him, the more you can worship Him. And you, Have you ever wondered how strange it is that you can read the same Bible over and over, the same passage over and over, and it continually gives more and more and more? This is the type of spiritual enlightenment that he's talking about. He's praying that the Holy Spirit would grow in you and that you would see more and more of the goodness of God. Now, verse 18 still, the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. Heart here is not our sort of uh, Valentine's romantic heart emotions, just pure uh, sentimental love there. It's talking about the core of who you are, that your mind, your will, everything about you, that it would be opened and enlightened. Yes, there is an emotional aspect to it, but it's all of you. That's the center of who you are in the biblical conception. Second Corinthians three fourteen. But their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remained unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. We know this truth. We sing it in amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see we we see that this veil that Christ can take away. The Pharisees were very well read in the Old Testament scriptures. They knew them well, but they had not had the veil lifted. They, you can read and study the scriptures. And unless God would give that knowledge and wisdom and power, there will be no fruit. How sad it is that our uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, which was a bastion of Christian faith in yesteryear, has now apostatized. And so many of these professors write uh, things that are so counter to the faith. They study the scriptures and yet they know not what is in them. What a sad situation to be in. Matthew Henry puts it this way, the graces and comforts of the spirit are communicated to the soul by enlightening the understanding. In this way, he gains and keeps possession. Uh, I'm going to come back to this Matthew Henry quote in a moment. But what I do want to make clear is what we're talking about here is not some sort of Gnosticism. So it's not in that there's this secret knowledge that you cannot get from scriptures. You have to intuit it at a higher level. That was a heresy that they had in the early centuries. We're not talking about here something that is hidden, that is not written in the scriptures. It is plain in the scriptures for you to see. But the point is, some people can see this plain scriptures and love sin so much that they reject it and won't accept it. So this is not a secret knowledge that we're speaking of. This is being able to respond to the truth that is plain and obvious right in the scriptures. So Matthew Henry says, uh, God is working this way. He's giving this grace and this illumination for you to see. And Satan works in a contrary way. 
he gets possession by the senses and the passions. He tries to entice and to do these things. God is, is enlightening the mind and giving you this, and Satan is working in other uh, ways. One charismatic personality on TV was mad at what uh, he had deemed heresy hunters, people that were critiquing when he would say X, Y, or Z, and they'd say, well, look in Scripture. It doesn't say that. That's not right. And he... Um, This was his response when he was thinking about these quote-unquote heresy hunters. Let God sort out all this doctrinal doo-doo. I don't care about it. This is the opposite of what Paul is praying here. Christian, know and see the truth about God. You, you have to know somebody to have a relationship with them. And the more you know of God, the more you can worship Him. And Paul is praying, I'm so thankful that you are digging into Christ. Your roots are going deep. You're seeing more of Him. And you're bearing the fruit in your life because of it. There is the first point that I wanted you to see. Uh, well, no. Uh, the first point is the knowledge of God. So I've, I've gone over that. That's what I'm wanting to take from the first point. We are about the knowledge of God. God is giving that to us. Paul is praying that for us. And so that is what we want to see. Now we're moving into the second. What are the benefits of this? Well, verse 18. That you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. So he's praying that they will get this knowledge and this enlightenment and this knowledge, this wisdom, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. What is this benefit? This is the hope. Now, the biblical conception of hope is so far removed to the way we use it today. I hope it doesn't rain today. We want to go on the picnic. What does it mean in that sentence? Well, it may or may not. I have no clue, but I just I would prefer that it didn't rain today. The biblical conception of hope is that it is a certainty. It is something that has not happened. We can think of Hebrews 11.1, 1, which gives us the definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the assurance of this hope, the conviction of things not seen. And remember, we can look back up in verse 13 and 14 of this text from last time. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So remember, that was one of our takeaways from last time. How is this accomplished? By God's sovereign hand. There is no way that it can be undone. There is no way that it can not happen. So this, this hope that you would see, this is not a, I prefer it, I'm, I'm, I'm wishing it, it's a small chance, but it's, no, this is confident hope that we have in this scripture. Verse 18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Who gets an inheritance? Well, um, mostly it is for uh, heirs. It is for children. So if we look back up in verse 5 and 6, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved adoption. You heard Pastor Wakeland speak about that this morning. This is uh, just one um, metaphor that we can use to try and think of it. Uh, 
it is possible for a judge, you can imagine a situation where a judge is um, dispensing the verdict. The jury has decided the verdict and the jury has said not guilty. And the judge thinks this is an appalling uh, just error of law, that this is unjust, but he has to go with what the jury says. And so he rings the mallet and he tells the, the person, I am disgusted with every part of you, but I am releasing you because this jury has found it. Get out of my sight. Now, uh, this is a bad analogy in many ways. One, there is no jury besides God. So God is the judge and he makes the decision. Uh, but the point is God is not just forgiving you. That's justification, making you right with him. He's not just saying you're right and then disassociating himself with us, which he would have every right to do because we are uh, odious in so many ways. But he not just does that. He brings us to him as children. And what's the great analogy that we hear so often in church? It's the prodigal son. This, we're not given, Jesus doesn't tell a parable about this judge that hates the people he's forgiving. He tells a parable of this father who will come running to his child. Oh, what a wonderful thought. So God here, in this verse, Paul is saying, you have an inheritance in Christ. Now, what are you inheriting? We went over that last time about the heavenly storehouses with Christ that are up in heaven. So we are inheriting many things, and we could go into those uh, at depth, but we do not have time. This uh, adoption uh, situation where God is our Father, uh, many of us have parents that we love uh, so much. Some of us have lost our parents and you uh, you miss being able to call them up and, and talk to them and ask them advice and questions. Or or you can imagine a child who uh, does not have a parent growing up and they skin their knee. Well, who do they run to? Who do they cry to? Who do they jump in the arms of? All of these images of a good parent loving a child. This is what you have in God. All of our parents, as good as they are, are just small pictures of the good love that our Father has. We go to him crying to him in his arms and he comforts us. Oh, what a glorious, glorious image we're given here where we're told we are adopted and have an inheritance with God. Uh, this is um, where we're going to transition into our third point. Oh, before we do, I need to make one note. There were some commentators in um, researching this verse who say that this uh, inheritance is actually an inheritance for Christ. It's not talking about our inheritance of him and his riches. It's talking about uh, the church as his inheritance. And uh, they might point to uh, Malachi 3, 16 and 17. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Uh, so there is this instance. So um, most of the commentators said, well, even if whichever case it is, it's two sides of the same coin. So if we, the church, are Christ's inheritance, we get that we are his bride. We, we are going to be together. And so him getting us, uh, we get him. So it's two sides of the same coin in either case. Now we're moving to verse 19 through 21. What is the immeasurable 
greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. What it, notice how he's, he's, he's stacking uh, power upon power. He says the greatness of his power, the great might, seated at the right hand of God, above every power and dominion. I mean, the power is just stacking higher and higher and higher. Uh, I hope that you get that image there. Uh, what is the, you could think of, try and think about the most powerful thing you can think of on this planet. The most powerful, you might think of nuclear weapons, the devastation that those could cause. Uh, you might think of, um, you know, when skyscrapers were first being developed and, and uh, highways with concrete, people were thinking, what can't man do? Man can do all of these things and create this industry and do all of these things. This power is as nothing compared to God. Uh, think about the mighty city of Houston. God sends a tiny little cold snap. And what happens? Everything shuts down. All gone. Do you think that was hard for God? One tiny little cold snap? His power is beyond anything we can even imagine. Uh, many of us love to go to Galveston all the time. If you've seen the pictures of the Galveston hurricane that ruined the whole city, wiped it out. It used to be a major port town, and it was completely wiped out. One little storm that God can send. God's power is above all things. You think of Jesus on the, on the Sea of Galilee, the storm raging, and he just has to wake up and say a word, and it calms. This is the God of all. But what does he point? Paul doesn't mention these other things. What does he mention? He raised him from the dead. That's why we, I requested that hymn, Up from the, graze, the grave he arose. Low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting for the coming day. Jesus my Lord, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. He lives forever with his saints to raise. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Our God has power over life and death. What Power that is. This is the God, the highest God, the mighty one that we worship. Now, verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all of the church. Who is the head of the church? That's a simple question. It would be absolutely absurd for anyone to claim that position. Uh, I would be remiss if I stood at a Presbyterian pulpit and did not mention to you at this point Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, which is our constitutional document, the subordinate standard under the scriptures. Section 6 says this, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be the head thereof. Now, you may say, uh, Charles, the Reformation's over. It's time to move on. I will quote to you from uh, something recent, the current Catholic Catechism. It's, this is the current one that they use, printed in 1992. 
And this is paragraph 882. The Pope, the Bishop of Rome, by reason of his office as Vicar of Christ, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. Now, you remember when we were in verses 1 through 14, we made the point, where is all, what is Paul hammering, hammer blow after hammer blow? All of these things are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He kept saying that. And we made the point that we don't want anything to obscure Christ. Well, in these verses, he's saying Christ is the head. He's the king. He is the one to whom we will be serving. Now, I want to make this clear. We do not quarrel with Rome out of hatred in our hearts. We are quarreling with Rome because God's glory is so important. I want to read to you Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. My, my name, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not be cut off. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake do I do this. I do not do it for another. My glory I will not give to another. And remember, we talked about how important it is that God receive his glory. It is injustice for him to give it to anyone to whom it does not belong. There is no person on this planet whom we as Christians should get on our knees and kiss their rings and serve as they are the head of the church. That is Christ's position. We are jealous for that as Christ, as God, as Paul is jealous for that. God put Christ as head of the church. No man can usurp that position. Uh, Today is the 28th of February. It is a happy providence that this day, uh, just as a historical side note, I'm going to tell you this. In 1638, uh, the Scottish Presbyterians, uh, we know Presbyterianism originated in Scotland. Uh, Knox studied under Calvin in Geneva and then returned uh, to Scotland. They, They came to the Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh and signed the National Covenant. And that covenant went all around Scotland. And what that covenant was saying is, we will have this church pure for Christ. This was the Reformation. In 1560, uh, John Knox had won the Reformation. So there was a Reformation in Germany, Reformation in Switzerland. And John Knox had come back. And by 1560, they had instituted in the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, the General Assembly of Scotland, they'd instituted the Reformation. It finally got through. Well, now in 1638, uh, a new king had come to power. And they removed Knox's book of discipline and they started to reinstall these rituals and these uh, what the the, uh, covenanters, that's what they came to be called, the covenanters, because they all were dying for the covenant. Uh, They started to install what they called English popish ceremonies. And I just want to read to you this one quote from George Gillespie, who was one of the Scottish uh, commissioners to the Westminster Assembly. The vain shows and shadows of these ceremonies have hid and obscured the substance of religion. True life of godliness is smothered down and suppressed by the burden of these human inventions. 
So we do not, that's the quote, we do not quarrel with Rome out of hatred or, or bigotry. We quarrel because we want all people to have pure, unadulterated Christ. We want them to see his kingship, his lordship. We want all people to have that. Christ demands it. God's glory demands it. And so do we. And now, to conclude, we come to verse 23 which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This body image is a frequent one, a frequent metaphor, a frequent analogy in Scripture. Uh, it is not the only one. Paul also uses it in Romans and Galatians and other places. It's not the only one. Uh, in the next chapter, you're going to see that he also uses the image of a building with a foundation. He also called, uh, compares it to a household, an empire, a bride, vine and branches, Jesus compared it to. So uh, when we are getting to this verse where it talks about the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all, his body. We should not just kind of trivially, trivially move over this. I think in the American church we have a very low esteem of the church. And look at the language he's using here. We are one body. That is a unity. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones clarifies it saying, We are not joined loosely with each other or mechanically. We are intimately, organically, vitally together. When you cut off a finger, it loses its connection to the nerves, to the body. To the, it is vital importance, not just an appendage that you attach and don't attach. It is one unit. This is the body of Christ. And now let's look at this language. Him who fills all in all. So this body, this, this church of Christ that is extending throughout the time and ages. Think about that. Since Adam sinned and there was the fall, God gave in Genesis 3.15 the Proto-Evangelion. One day, the seed of man, Christ, will crush the head of the serpent. So he's giving this entire, and then from that day it went to a nation, to Israel. And then when Christ came, it came to the nations, to the Gentiles, to everybody. This body of Christ, this amazing thing of which Christ is the head, is being made perfect. And how is it being made perfect? It's being made perfect in the power of God. God is the one who's filling and doing and making. When you look around this room... These Christians around you, we are one body. This is one church, one organic entity. And this body is stretching back to Adam and Eve and all the way into the future until Christ comes back, including the saints who have already gone before us in heaven. We are one body. This is an amazing thing. Don't just think, oh, it's church. I hate that we use and I use it because it's what we do. I'm going to church. You're not going to church. You are the church. The build. We're going to the meeting house, the building of the church, not the church. We are part of this church. Um, I'm going to read uh, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ Jesus as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. So think of that, Christian. You have the privilege of being part of this eternal plan 
of uniting all things. And as this body, this church grows and moves on, we are accomplishing His will. May we truly revel in that. We are going to um, be singing this final hymn, which is uh, Lead On, O King Eternal. I want to read this line to you. As we sing it, as we sing this final hymn, I want you to think that this body that we are, this one body with Christ as the head, He is leading us on, and we are living out these words. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease, and holiness shall whisper the sweet Amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing, nor of roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Let us pray. Oh, Father, make us full of your wisdom. Enlighten our hearts. Grant your wisdom. Cause us to grow in its graces. Teach us to be your body. Help us to appreciate how sweet that truth is for our good, for your glory. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The final hymn is hymn number 580. Lead on, O King Eternal. 580.